Well, let us turn and let's go look in the wardrobe of the high priest in Exodus chapter 28. And we're turning to this question, what you wear matters, or does it? This is part of the question. And this is a question our own Congress, sometimes seemingly the circus of our whole political experiment, has had to answer something like a little over a month ago as Chuck Schumer axed the dress code for the Senate. It seems for the very purpose that Senator John Fetterman could don his distinctive hoodie and shorts into the Senate chambers. Well, interestingly enough, there was enough of an outcry, a bipartisan one, mark the day in American politics, from both sides were saying, maybe that wasn't the best idea. So the dress code's back. Apparently, at least in the Senate, what you wear matters. It's back to ties and suit pants. But does it matter, really? Does how you dress, say, especially in worship, matter, matter to God. Curious, if you go on most church websites these days, and part of probably just the more casual nature of our whole culture, many of the churches, are they advertise that it doesn't matter what you dress, just come as you are. It's part of the advertisement of why you should visit them. And we've even talked about this recently in the sermons in Exodus. In the end, there's something far, far more important than how you show yourself on the outside. God's looking at the heart. So in that way, clothes don't matter so much. Be modest, please, but beyond that, come as you are. True. But for Israel, in the Old Covenant, oh, it mattered. It mattered like life and death mattered in this text that we just read. It mattered big time. And from this required dress code, again, given by God, we actually learn something about our own salvation. We learn something about our own relationship with God because we learn about how our high priest, at least in figures, is dressed in heaven and what he is doing for us. So we need to look hard at this high priest in Exodus and study his clothes. And if we do so, maybe curiously enough, you will grow an assurance of your salvation if you are in Christ. If you've repented and believed and pleading only by Christ before God, then you will find great assurance as you look at him this morning. And really, that's the summary as we come to it. The more you look at Christ, the more you understand who he is, what he's doing for you in heaven, the more you will swell an assurance of your salvation. So we're going to look at Christ together through the figure of this high priest for Israel of the Old Covenant. So as we come to it then, the word is find assurance in Christ because your mediator, your priest in the first place, your priest represents you before God. Why should you have such assurance before God? Well, because he represents you before God. That's his role. That's his mission. And we'll see that in the opening 30 verses of chapter 28. And as it begins in the first paragraph, kind of outlining where the rest of the chapter is going to go, uh, this is the first truth that just comes out. It defines what a priest does. And he goes before God on your behalf. He represents you before him. That's what a priest does. He's a mediator. He's a go-between, a reconciler. In this way, you think of what is a mediator. It's one who takes two parties that are at odds and makes them at peace. And of course, the picture is, we have sinned against God, we are at odds with Him, and so the mediator comes in to bridge the gap. That's what a mediator does, and that's what the priest is to do. Verse 1, 
So then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. That's the operative word there. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. So they are equipped being designated to be the go-between. It's interesting, as you think about the design of the tabernacle we looked at the last couple of weeks, we were starting in the Holy of Holies and we moved our way out. But now, with the priest, we're going to work our way back in. But first, he has to get ready for this. And the way a priest is going to get ready is he has special clothes, evidently. What's very necessary for, in this old covenant, for him to be able to represent you and come into the Holy of Holies, he had to have this special dress. And so that's what the rest of this text really looks at. And that's what we're going to look at. And we're going to see what they were and what they represented. Look at verse 2. It shows how these things were required. You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and they will be for glory and for beauty. That is, his clothes to be serving as priests are going to be glorious. But Think of that not merely in the beautiful sense, like we might use it, oh, it's a glorious sunset. The Hebrew sense for glorious is weighty, significant, meaningful. So his dress inherently says something about what he's doing. It's filled with meaning. And we see that they are essential to the priest's work. Look at verse 4. These are the garments that they shall make. So then he gives us kind of an outline of what his ensemble should be. A breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons, but the operative term at the end, to serve me as priests. If he doesn't have these things, he can't serve as a priest. He can't be a mediator unless he's dressed like this. Now I submit to you, These clothes are not so essential because there's something magical about them, because they have special spiritual power. No, it's about what they represent. And that's explained for us in pieces here. That is, God, by His own design, His own mandate, this wasn't what Aaron thought of about how he should go meet God. No, God gives the dress code, and He does it intentionally to teach, to tell us something, what it takes to get near Him, In the first place, we're seeing you need a mediator, you need a priest. And you need a priest dressed like this, as that ensemble listed in verse 4. But then as we look at each piece, we find something about why we need a priest and what the priest does. So in the first place, we looked at the first piece of clothing, beginning there in verse 6, really through verse 14, and it's this ephod. And this ephod is this aspect of the priesthood that shows you belong. You belong in the very presence of God. That's what the ephod illustrates. You belong here, but through the ministry of the priest. And it's found in this linen ephod. That's what's described in verses 6 through 11, or 14 rather. Now, I don't know about you, but the last time I was in Macy's or Old Davy, uh, I didn't go to the ephod section. I don't think I've ever had an ephod. Actually, I'm rather sure I haven't. Um, it's a Hebrew word even, so it's particular to the Jews and particularly to this ministry or the ministry of a priest. What it was, it was like a special kind of apron that goes over your head front to back or maybe something like a shawl. Here's an artist's rendering of it. And let me get this out of the way. This is courtesy of the ESV study Bible used with permission. Okay. But you can take a look at the author's rendering and the ephod is this multicolored apron. You see it kind of goes down to about his thighs 
has a tie in the front, that's the sash, actually a different part, but you're getting to then see the ephod. And two things immediately stand out about this ephod or this apron. First of all, do you notice the ephod's colors? For those of you that have been with us as we've been talking about the tabernacle, do those colors look at all familiar? Well, they should. It's the same color scheme of the special veils that were in the tabernacle. Here's the picture of the tabernacle. You notice the veils. These were like the doors that take you to within the Holy of Holies. You're getting holier as you pass through the veils. And you notice the very ephod is the same color scheme. And they're described actually in the very same way. So the ephod's decoration is described in verse 6, and it reads, And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue, of purple, and scarlet yarns, of fine twined linen, skillfully worked, matching the Hebrew descriptions for how the veils were to be made. So what's the point? With this apparel, the high priest matches. He belongs. He's on brand when he's in the holy place. Shows that he should be here. He's wearing the holy place color scheme. And so in the very design of what the priest is wearing, it's showing you belong with me and before me and in my presence. But here's the other thing. It's not just that the priest belongs there, but so do you if you're one of his. His people do. That's the other extraordinary thing about this ephod. Look at the illustration again. And look and note, there are these two decorative stones that sit on the priest's shoulders as part of the ephod. Now, they're not mere adornment. They actually mean something. And how do I know this? Because the text says so. I'm not making this up. Let's look at verse 9. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, verse 10, six of their names on one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. So the names of all the sons of Israel were being placed on the shoulders of the high priest as then he enters in to minister in the holy place before God. What is this about? Verse 12, again, tells us. Let's not make it up. It says, And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. He's bringing them before God. That's what's being represented here. He's carrying them on his shoulders into the very presence and face of God. That means as the high priest comes in to minister and goes in the tabernacle, he's not going in on his name. You know, he's not going in as Aaron. He's not going in as Rick before God's presence. But he's going in in their stead, in their name. Carrying them, literally carrying their names before the throne of God. One theologian put it like this. The high priest was known before the Lord, not by his own name, but their names. It was their names in that he entered the most holy place to represent them, to bring them to God. In much the same way, we have political representatives. They represent us. Sometimes how they dress. We dealt with that a moment ago, didn't we? But what happens? We vote for these guys, and they go off to Richmond, or they go off to Washington. And what are they doing? They're standing in for us. They're our representative. They're standing up for our cares, our concerns, right? The concerns of his constituency. Well, that's what the high priest is doing for the people of God. He's standing in for them. 
for their cares, for their concerns of his constituents, but before the face of God. The other side of this is that, as it notes, this is not by accident. He's carrying them on his shoulders. Literally, he would feel the weight of them on his shoulders as he comes into the holy place. And we, and we know this expression. You put something on your shoulders, you're going to take it on your shoulders. What are you saying? I'm taking responsibility for that. He's taking responsibility for the people of God as he then enters into the holy place. And when I think about that, I cannot help but fast forward and think to the Garden of Gethsemane. When, as it were, Jesus is taking on the names of his people on his shoulders. And he's, he's feeling the weight of their sin. What does he do? He casts himself before the Lord and says, if there's another way, let it happen, but let your will be done. He sweats drops of blood. And there was no other way out. Why? Because he had to be us. He had to represent us. He had to take on our sins. And such that, understand that it wasn't for him when he cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that was for you. So you wouldn't be forsaken. And when he cried out, it is finished, he wasn't saying, well, my job's done today merely. No, he's saying your sin is finished because he stood in for you. Why? Because by faith, Christ represents us. And he did so at the cross, dying in our place, and he even represents us now alive at the Father's right hand. This is the ministry of the great priest. Furthermore, the priest proves that you are precious in the sight of God. This shows itself as we turn to consider the next article of clothing of the high priest. Looking here at verse 15, it's the breast piece or translated breast plate or chest piece. Now, when you hear breast plate, I think, I think like armor, like a knight in shining armor, but that's not what this is. Uh, it's the covering over the front part of the ephod. It's this part here that sits on his chest. This is the breast piece. And right away as you look at it, what stands out, but these 12 jewels that are nicely ordered on the front, jewels as it lists in verse 17 and following of sardius and topaz and carbuncle and emerald and sapphire, diamond, jacinth, agate, amethyst, beryl, onyx, and jasper, or I'll just say our things like these. Um, you might be reading along or did in your own English translation if it wasn't the ESV and some of the words were different. It's because translators were, were a bit aghast to try and figure out what precisely uh, these jewels were. So you might see a different order or something like this. But this much is very clear. There are 12 stones, and they are very precious stones, whatever they are. Now, why is this significant? Why would there be 12 stones? But of course, that each one represents and is marked with the name of a singular tribe of Israel. And I'm not making that up. It's right in the text. Look at verse 21. There shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. And they shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. So before, remember, he had the names of Israel on his shoulders, but six tribes each shared one stone. But now, 
Each tribe gets a particular stone with just its own individual name on it. As if, as he goes into the presence of God, he remembers them by name, each one. Oh Lord, remember Levi. Oh Lord, remember Judah. Oh Lord, remember Simeon. What it shows us is that the ministry of the priest, it wasn't just for a big generic group of people. He wasn't just ministering uh, of, for Israel as a group or the church as just a big group of redeemed, this generic blob of nameless people. No, he's ministering for individuals. He's saving and calling them each by name before the throne of God. Is this not what the good shepherd does as Jesus described it in John chapter 10? Hear this, brothers and sisters. To the true shepherd, the gatekeeper opens. This is John 10, 3. And the sheep hear the shepherd's voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He knows them. Jack, come here. Brother Mike, come here. Come here. You are mine. I know you. I called you by name. Just as the priest names each tribe, each treasure before him. Now, while it may be intimidating to think that we're getting so personal right now with God, or scary even, he not only knows your name and he knows more about you than you know about yourself, that might be scary and rightly should be in some sense. But notice these adornment. It's not by accident that they are written in jewels. Why? Because his people are his treasure. He delights in them. He adores them. He looks at you in Christ all the more and says, you dazzle me. You're beautiful in my eyes. And notice here, they're not a burden on his shoulders, but they're on his chest near his heart, it says repeatedly here. Close to his chest, always on his mind and his heart. This is what he thinks of his people. And why? So he can relate to them. So he can give them his word and his will. That's what's pictured in verse 30. In his affection and his delight for his people, it allows this interchange. We come close to him and he talks to us. He gives us his word. And that's pictured here with these special stones, the Urim and Thummim. Verses 30. And in the breast piece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim. And they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. And thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. Now, what is this all about? It's about getting God's word. It's about knowing the very will of God. The priest gets it and he's going to give it out to the people. Now, what are these? And rather mysterious, honestly, the Urim and the Thummim. We're not given a lot of details. But from what we understand, these words, Urim and Thummim, probably refer to light and dark. These were then identical stones, save the way they looked in appearance, but they had the same weight, they had the same feel, and they were held, whether it was two of them or many of them, they were held in a pocket probably right behind that breastpiece. And so they would all feel the same as you reach in the pocket to grab one. And what then the priest would do, he would be determining or finding the will of God by this breastpiece and reaching in and grabbing the stone. So the clearest example we have of this 
or one that calls to mind, is in 1 Samuel 14. Do you remember that? That's the scenario where you had, it was between King Saul and his son Jonathan. And Saul discovered that God was no longer leading him and talking to him. In other words, God was giving him a cold shoulder. And so Saul realized something's amiss. Someone sinned. And so then he says, he brings the priest forward and he says, okay, who's in the wrong? Is it the people of Israel or is it me or Jonathan? And how he's going to know, we're going to pull the Urim or the Thummim. If it's Urim, then we know it's Jonathan. And that's exactly what happens. Because remember, Jonathan had broken Saul's oath that he didn't even know about, but he broke the oath as he took the honey on the road. The point is, God was able to reveal his secret will and insight through these stones. And more fundamentally, the greater point is actually this. God wants to communicate with his people. He he wants to interact with us. He wants to reveal his heart, his will to us. Now, and I do not mean the casting of lots or dice to reveal his secret will, you know, like as we're trying to play the game of risk, but with our Christian lives, you know, should I marry her? Oh, I got snake eyes. Let me try again. She's really pretty. Okay. Now, that's not this. This is not how we determine the will of God. Actually, in the New Testament, note this. In Acts chapter 2, once the Holy Spirit comes, you don't hear of casting lots ever again. Why? Because God lives in us. And how does He teach us or reveal His will? He's given us the book. And He's given us His Spirit to teach us by the Holy Spirit what it means and how it plays out in our life. But fundamentally, this is what it's about. God speaks. We listen. We pray. We ask. We we ask for wisdom and he gives it. James chapter 1. You know why? Because he's in a relationship with his people. That's even pictured here by this whole getup. Fellowship in his presence. The priest gives us the will of God. Not just an audience, but a relationship with the holy God. But this means... Still, and what's underlying all of this, to get close, to know this God, to have a relationship, you're a sinner and you can't get too close. He's too holy, so you have to have a mediator. You have to have someone who's holy enough that can get close enough before God to actually get you there, to carry you there, to bring you in a place that you otherwise have no right to get near. In this case, the burning holiness of God. And we know that these things we're studying this morning, Acts 28 and the whole tabernacle, these are just types and figures of heavenly realities. They are things that are models that point to a bigger and greater reality. The author of Hebrews picks up on this, tells us as much, in the New Testament. But actually, because there was a clue that we saw, and actually it's repeatedly here, in the requirements of the tabernacle. I point you, or just remember, here it is, Exodus chapter 25, verse 9, where God is giving Moses the whole layout here, and he says this, the layout of the tabernacle, and he says, exactly as I show you, Moses, concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so shall you make it. And the word pattern there in other places, the idea is it's a type, it's a pointer, it's a model, it's pointing to some greater reality. That is, he wasn't just giving Moses the plans, he was showing Moses a vision in heaven, and he's saying, you're going to make a model of that on earth. 
And so the author of Hebrews picks up on this and he describes the tabernacle that it was patterned after something real in heaven, God's real holy dwelling place. And so all that the, the high priest is doing and all of the garb and all of the veils and all of this, those are just models, miniatures of something real. And that way the tabernacle and the high priest's clothes, they're like a matchbox race car. They look really cool. And they look just like the real car. And that's what I really like about matchbox cars is because they correspond to real cars, not Hot Wheels. You know Hot Wheels? They have like flames on the side and supersized engines coming out of the hood and all of that. I mean, that's cool. But you never find those cars. The matchbox cars are the real ones. They're just the size of a matchbox. But that matchbox car, you try and get in it, you're not going anywhere. It's a model. It's a miniature. Well, these priests that we're reading about here, they're ministering in the model. But it's teaching us, you need a representative, not in the model. You need a representative on your behalf in heaven, where God actually dwells. And the author of Hebrews picks up on this and says, you know, that's what Jesus Christ has precisely done. Because get this, he died on the cross and then he rose from the dead, but he didn't just walk around on earth. He ascended into heaven at the Father's right hand in his presence. Why? To be there for you. Listen to this. This is Hebrews 9, 24. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, this whole tabernacle thing, which are copies of the true things, but he entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God But then it adds, on your behalf, for you. Christ sits in heaven at the Father's right hand for you to speak a word, to make a case for you, to bring your interest before the holy God in heaven. And what does he do there? How does he make his case? What does he plead? Well, Hebrews tells us, but he pleads his death for you. Hebrews 9.25, nor, so why does he go to the Father for us? Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy priest or holy places every year with blood on his own, speaking again of the earthly tabernacle. For then Jesus would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Why could it be once for all? Because when he did die, it's done. And so that means, what is he pleading? Father, I did all the work for him already. Father, I won and ransomed his life. Father, I already took away all of his sin. Christ declares in heaven before the Father, before all of his heavenly angels, before the devil who's accusing the people of God, yes, but I came and my blood bought that one, and he's mine. I put away all of his sin by the sacrifice of myself. Yeah, that sinner right there, he's mine. Because know this, he doesn't just intercede generically for all believers or for the church out there. But he makes your case personally, individually. He invokes your name before the Father to commend it to him by his death. He's your personal representative. Yeah, Jack's mine. Yeah, June is mine. Yeah, Patty's mine. I bought them, Father. They're with us. And if that's your representative... 
you have no need for any other. That's why Paul can say, just notice in Galatians 2.20, how personal this is. He's talking about his personal life devoted to this priest of his. And he says, I've been crucified with Christ. That's how personal this is. When Jesus was crucified, Paul was effectively crucified. So it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. But here's where it ends. Who loved not just the church? Who loved the church and gave himself up for her? Though that's all true, but what does Paul say? Who loved me and gave himself up for me? He's a personal priest. He died for me. He represents you in heaven if you trust him. So may we represent him on earth, testifying to what he's done by a changed life. That's why we should have assurance. Second, have assurance because your priest protects you before God. Verses 31 to 43. As we're dealing with this question, how can sinners get close? You know, God's so holy, he's so perfect. We need a priest who not only brings us into the holiness of God, but protects us, lest we're consumed. And so we see first, as we continue to look at the priest's clothes, that he grants us safe access. And that's pictured in verses 31 through 35 with this robe that he wears. Verse 31, the robe of the ephod. Verse 31, you shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. And so you can see it here. It's this under layer that runs uh, almost to the length of his feet. This is the robe, and it's all blue. You'll notice it's decorated on the bottom with pomegranates and bells. These are important. Verse 34, it says at the hem, it's got a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. Now, what what is this about? Why bells? Well, notice these bells are actually really important. Uh, Look at verse 35 to see their importance. They're very important. It says, verse 35, And it shall be on Aaron, so the high priest, when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, notice, so that he does not die. I'd say these are pretty important. So notice, it's only Aaron, the high priest, who wears this. He is the one who gets the bells. No one else does between the priests. Because he is the only one invited to come in. He is the only one invited to come close. So, so to speak, when God hears the bells, he knows who's coming in, and it's the invited one, the one who's bearing your names. But any other does not have authority to come this close. Aaron's sons will find this out in Leviticus chapter 10, I think. But because there's the bells, it's kind of like Aaron entering into the holy places. He rings the intercom, are his bells. And God answers saying, yes, who is it? Aaron says, well, you can hear me, it's me. And God says, of course, come in. I was expecting you. This is the invitation to us through our priest. But otherwise, it's too dangerous. You can only come on his invitation. The next protective piece that's given is this special nameplate or crown that's fixed to the high priest's turban. Would have looked something like this, we think. And more importantly, however, it's described here 
in verse 36. It says, You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet. So it's going to have words across the top. Holy to the Lord. So the high priest is going and bearing all these different names, but he also has like this name tag on his forehead. Hello, my name is Holy to the Lord. Holiness is pronounced over this priest. That he is holy. He represents holiness. Now for what purpose? Why does he have to wear these words? Well, we're told in verse 38. Look there. It shall be on Aaron's forehead... And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. There's a lot of different words and things going on there. But I want to highlight, what can Aaron do because he has this special name tag? Because he has this plate that says, holy to the Lord? Again, verse 38, Aaron shall bear any guilt. This plate allows him to bear the guilt of their sins. The guilt and failings of the people get assumed and put on Aaron's headband. The implication is, it's guilt's taken off the people and it's put on this band. And in such a way that he can take the sins away and somehow like absorb them. The holiness of God destroys sin. And somehow now it's taken off the people so it doesn't destroy them. But absorbed by the holy declaration of God over this priest. And actually this very phrase, bearing guilt, is what's used as God's name is described in Exodus 34. There it's most often translated, he forgives sin. But there's some way he's forgiving and taking away sin by taking it up himself. This is the marvel of who our God is. He is a forgiving God, but because He, in His very nature, bears the sin on Himself and His holiness. But what's the implication, or what is this? How does this work? By His holiness, declared by God, this priest comes in and he bears the guilt, but specifically here, for anything lacking or failing in the Israelites' sacrifices. Say, offering an imperfect animal or having an imperfect heart. He, in effect, makes up for it with this holy declaration from God. This is marvelous. Maybe have you ever wondered about this? That if you're a Christian, that you've been changed, you want to do good now, you want to honor the Lord, but so much of the good that you do is just still tainted with sin. Do you know that feeling? You know, it seems behind that any good and faithful work you do, like the more layers you peel back, you just find something gross underneath in your own heart. You know, like you study hard and you're going to preach a dynamic sermon on the priest's clothes and you want to be a help to people, but then you also want affirmation because you're actually really thankful for them and they express thanks, but in the end, deep down, you're just hoping for affirmation commendation. You're hoping for some benefit to come back your way. And how much of what we do for one another is, even when people commend us, it's really about serving ourselves. And if you can be that critical about any good work you do, I have to ask, is anything you do wholly and perfectly good or love its own? I don't think so, honestly. We're a mixed bag. 
We're filled with mixed motives. Even with the Holy Spirit within us, we have changed desires. We are more patient. We are more loving. But selfishness, pride, self-serving motives, they just lie so close at hand, if not right under the surface. And yet here, that priest's holy headband declares that still your representative in heaven is still holy. And so then all the worship you bring through him, however imperfect it is, it's received and accepted by the holy and perfect God. Notice again, it says, He bears any guilt from the holy things, that's their offerings and their worship, that the people consecrated as their gifts. So, of course, I trust you're already making the connection. But this is the great glory of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and that he's given you his righteousness. He's given you a crown that says, Holy to the Lord righteous in him. And notice his righteousness, it's perfect. It's unfailing. It's undiminished. We'll sing it in a moment. It's unchanging and not diminished in the least. So that whatever imperfections are in your worship before God, whatever taintedness there is in your obedience, however meager your offerings, however mixed they are, get this, because he stands in your place, the father receives them and accepts them all the same. Look at verse 38. What's the result of this holy headband? More importantly, the righteousness of Christ. It, that holy headband, shall regularly be on his forehead. Why? That they may be accepted before the Lord. And I submit to you, the whole point is not merely accepted, as in begrudgingly, I guess we'll take you. Oh, he delights in it. But it's not because of you. It's because of your priest and what he has done for you. What grace. As we turn to the last paragraph here, we see this last pieces of adornment for the priests. And actually, we turn to all the priests and all their general adornment. We see in verse 40, they're still glorious and beautiful, but not as so distinct And there's one piece of the garment that's highlighted through the rest of this text, so we look at it, and actually, to our surprise, it's dealing with underpants. Look at verse 42, holy underpants. Here we go. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh, and they shall reach from the hips to the thighs, of course, to cover their nakedness. Now, this is what was very distinctive about Israel's worship prescribed by God versus the other pagan nations that were all around Israel. The pagan nations in their uh, worship of their false gods was all about sexual morality. It was all about nakedness. They saw it as acting such pornographic things out were inciting the gods to fertilize their lands and to give fruit. Well, not for Israel, God's saying. Nakedness is our shame. And there will be nothing like that in the true worship of the true God. I mean, even remember in the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, what did they first realize right away? That they are naked. They've been exposed. They tried to cover it up with their fig leaves, of course, but God in his mercy gives them animal skins, again, to cover their shame. And that's even what's pictured here with these garments. Because if your shame's not covered, your sin's not covered, it's a very dangerous place if you get near this God. Look at verse 43. And they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This is pretty serious underwear. And so by extension, the shame, though, can be covered. It can be covered in this priest as he comes to worship God. 
And this kind of garment illustrates for us that the shame is real, but it can be covered, it can be dealt with if you've got a priest to stand in your place. I trust you're getting a sense for how this all ties together, that Jesus, our high priest, has ascended into the very throne room of God at his right hand, but for what purpose? To keep us and protect us, to sustain our faith and defend us until we see his face on that final day. Really to revisit the question, what does your priest do? He's there to represent you and he's there to defend you. And we must call that to mind constantly, brothers and sisters, because without it, we are, we are lost and we are astray. And even believers who have trusted in Christ, we can wrestle with this whole thing of assurance. And I submit to you, it's more likely because we've looked away from Christ and we're looking more to ourselves. And this was so true in the experience of John Bunyan. You know him because he wrote the book Pilgrim's Progress, the great allegory of the Christian life. But even after he became a Christian, John Bunyan struggled mightily with assurance. And so this truth is well captured. He had these great fears before God. It's been well captured by John Piper. He wrote this about Bunyan. It says, Bunyan was poring over the scriptures, but finding no peace or assurance. There were seasons of great doubt about the scriptures and about his own soul. Maybe some of you were even there this morning. For two years, Bunyan tells us, he was in the doom of damnation. He writes, I fear that this wicked sin of mine might be that sin unpardonable. Oh, no one knows the terrors of those days but myself. I found it hard work now to pray to God because despair was swallowing me up. You ever felt like that? Just couldn't even pray. Well, there seems to come a decisive moment for Bunyan. And uh, here it is in his own words. Bunyan said this. Now, one day I was passing into the field. And this sentence fell upon my soul. Your righteousness is in heaven. And I thought with all that I saw with my eyes, by faith, Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness. So that wherever I was, or whatever I was doing, God could not say he lacks my righteousness because it was right before him in Jesus Christ. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor was it my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away, so that from the time those dreadful scriptures of God about the unforgivable sin left off to trouble me, now went I also home rejoicing for the grace and love of God, but found in a great high priest. Brothers and sisters, may we look there. Assurance comes there as we look by faith a true faith of repentance, of commitment, of obedience, but a true faithful look to Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, help our hearts to look to Christ alone. And forgive us for looking so at ourselves. Forgive us for the impurities in our worship. And what a marvel it is that you make up for it all. And that you call us by name, you invite us with no reservations. The author of Hebrews talks about we come with boldness into your presence. We do that now. 
not because of who we are, but because of what our Christ has done, and that now he's interceding for your people there in heaven. Oh, God, uh, help us to walk in the joy of that assurance and the great hope and uh, testify to the, how you are alive and you're changing lives by your spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray.